Well, good morning, and particularly the team from Quinn and the, uh, the other companies involved. It's great to have you here this morning. Um, you may have seen that they have now released the words for the coronation service. And um, the, the papers have got very excited about this, and in particular about what they're calling the homage of the people. Um, the idea is that all of us uh, in our front rooms... Uh, watching TV are all going to kind of rise to our feet during the service and pledge allegiance to the crown uh, or to our TVs or something. And um, the Archbishop has said he hopes that people will do this all over the world, um, which may be a little bit ambitious, I think. But um, I thought we might practice here today. So here we go. So uh, the words are apparently, I call upon all persons of goodwill to make their homage in heart and voice to their undoubted king, defender of all. And um, the reply is, uh, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty, so help me God. Okay, so you've got six days to decide uh, whether you want to do that in your house uh, on Saturday and swear allegiance to your undoubted king. Uh, Now, while the the nation has been thinking about King Charles, we have taken six weeks here to think about his king, about King Jesus. And in fact, when when King Charles arrives, some tiny uh, choir boy or girl is going to greet him in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And according to the words, King Charles is going to say, in his name and after his example... I come not to be served, but to serve. Now, um, you may or may not think it matters a great deal whether you swear allegiance through your telly to King Charles on Saturday. Um, You may think it matters less whether you swear allegiance to a man called Jesus, born 2,000 years ago. But to Matthew, who knew him, He wrote his gospel to convince you that nothing matters more, nothing. Uh, David, who who preached and started off our series, he told us Matthew's purpose is to establish the identity of Jesus, to put that beyond doubt. So the question is, is this your undoubted king? And Matthew does that this week in a, a very strange way, I think. So look down at page 966. If you closed it, get that open again, page 966. Um, last week, Jesus was born, and you've got a, a Jewish child with a Jewish mother and a Jewish family tree. And then this week, 2 verse 1, after Jesus was born, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he who's been born King of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And Magi from the East is very strange. Uh, There's been a a lot of fuss, hasn't there, about the fact that the coronation on Saturday will be full of normal people. Um, I think there are maybe three people who are members of All Souls who I think might be attending the coronation. I've only seen one of them today, and I've checked, and he is. So that's good. We've got at least one there. But... um, But hundreds of aristocrats have been told not to come this time, unlike last time, um, because normal people 
are going to be allowed to be there. And the BBC interviewed some of them. I don't know if you heard that. Um, And they, all of them, everyone thought the email was junk mail when it came. They thought it was a scam. Um, They thought people like me don't get invited to coronations. But um, even though they aren't aristocrats, and even though some of them do have, you know, sort of proper accents from around the country, um, it's still nothing like the shock of two verse one. So actually on Saturday, uh, all of the normal people will be wearing medals. Um, That's a clue, isn't it? They're they're all people who've done remarkable things in their communities, lots of them during COVID. These are the people who've run the the food banks and visited people who are lonely. But the Magi are astrologers. And they may be just a slight step above, um, you know, Mystic Meg in the papers, but that's who they are. They are, they're wise men from the religions of Babylon and Persia, which were the countries who conquered and destroyed Jerusalem. So it's, it's not quite the same. But just imagine that on Saturday, halfway through the coronation, imagine halfway through all the, um, the Grenadier guards sort of salute and then march off out of the abbey and are replaced by a regiment from the Russian army. You would, what are these people doing here? Um, see, in Matthew, there are, there are no shepherds. Um, the, it, that got Richard Dawkins a bit excited about 20 years ago, thought maybe there are contradictions between the two Gospels, which I, I think is a bit ridiculous. This is two years of Jesus' early life. So that's like asking someone what happened in the first two years of your life. And so shepherds turned up on the day he was born. And six months to a year later, uh, there's no reason why some magi couldn't show up as well. And Luke chooses to tell us about the shepherds. Matthew chooses to tell us about the magi. And the point is that Jesus is the king. And, and even magi from the east can work that out. And also that Jesus is their king. So imagine again on Saturday, imagine the Russians marched in and then knelt down and said, sorry, we're sorry for invading Ukraine. And imagine King Charles got off his throne and embraced them. This sort of that level of of international incident that we've got here. Where is the king of the Jews? Because we, we have come to worship him. And I want to show us um, two things from the Magi. And the first one is what the Magi know. Uh, And this one will take most of our time. What the Magi know, they know that Jesus is king of all the world. See, the the Bible claims that the birth of Jesus is a world event. In chapter 1, we get all of world history, and it goes the, um, the creation of human beings, the call of Abraham, the coronation of David, the exile to Babylon, and the birth of Jesus Christ. Like you get a a sort of really important event about once every thousand years, and this one is the biggest. So, no surprise that people from hundreds of miles away got the message. Um, I don't think it matters exactly how the stars told them to come. The the Bible is not recommending um, stargazing or wanting us to copy them. But somehow they studied the stars and they realized that the long-awaited king had been born. So they pack up their camels and they get their visas and they spend months on their way to the capital city. And they show up and they ask where the baby king is, which is a problem. 
Because um, in Jerusalem that day, there is a king already called Herod the Great. And he is at least in his mid-60s, not a baby. And his sons are in their 20s, their 30s, and their 40s. So uh, verse 3 says, Herod is disturbed to have miraculous visitors told by the heavens to come and find the new king of the Jews, disturbed. Um, and uh, more on that next week. But um, Herod knows what he should do. So Herod, he, he summons the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he orders them to Google where the Messiah would be born. And um, they turn to Micah chapter 5, which was the reading that, that Moto read for us. And the answer is in Bethlehem, in Judah. So Herod sends them off to Bethlehem, and just notice he really wants them to come back and tell him where. And he really, for some reason, wants to know exactly how old the baby is. More on that next week. But just on the facts of this, I wonder if we know the story too well from Christmas carols. Because all of this crazy stuff works. So you look at the stars 900 miles away to find out when a baby who no one's even heard of has been born. You then go to the capital city and ask for directions and they give you a map that was written 700 years before. And so you follow the star and you follow those ancient directions and you find the baby born exactly where it was expected to be with exactly the right parents. And you find actually that when you talk to them that angels and miracles have already been involved. Now, any one of those facts would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? But but all of them at once. And across our six weeks in Matthew, we're going to hear six times words like, this happened to fulfill the prophecy. So six times, Matthew can take you from an event in Jesus' life to a prophecy written hundreds of years before. And actually, he does that a lot through his whole book. And they cluster most of all around the birth and the death, which is striking, isn't it, when you think about it? The two moments in your life when you have least control over what happens to you. Um, you know, if, if you're alive and you're in charge, you can fake a prophecy. If I thought there was a prophecy that I was going to wear a grey jumper on, on April the 30th, 2023, all I've got to do is go and buy a jumper and turn up and remember to put it on and I'd be like, wow, I'm the milky bar kid or whatever the prophecy said. Uh, that would be fine. But um, when I was born, I wasn't really in control. Um, as I was born hundreds of miles from, from our home in Nottingham. Nobody asked me about that. Uh, nobody, I was not in charge. And when they execute you, uh, you might get asked for your last request, your last cigarette. But generally, you're not the one calling the shots, are you? And yet Jesus' place of birth and place of death, uh, the fact that his mother would be a virgin, the fact that he would be pierced on a cross, but his bones wouldn't be broken, the fact that they would draw lots for his clothes while he was dying, all of that was written down in advance. Let me see if I um, just kind of try and bring that home. Um, the, the, the building project, one thing that it taught me, so, and I should say, again, to add to Rico, thank you so much, uh, those who are involved. Thank you for all your work, um, and it's fantastic. I hope that we will all find them afterwards and thank them and, uh, and ask what was most annoying about the project or wherever it is you want to know. Um, but during the building project, they took me right up, um, not just on the roof, but right up 
to the, the top of the spire. Um, and in the spire is a time capsule placed there by John Stott in the 1960s. And we had to decide whether or not to get it out and open it. And as it happened, no, we, um, we, we decided to leave it there. We thought 60 years was not, was not long enough. But imagine that um, we opened that capsule this morning and it had this kind of detail in it. You know, not just what would happen, but where and who. Imagine maybe that John Stott had written down the exact words that the third person you bumped into this morning in church would say to you. Anne wrote down where they would be born and how they would die. What, what would you do with sort of that level of um, creepiness on a Sunday morning? That level of supernatural revelation? See, God wants to highlight that this is the one. And the, the wise men, they get down on their knees because they know They know that Jesus is king of all the world. They know he's their king. And um, in these six weeks, there are are lots of these Old Testament prophecies, and most weeks we're not going to be able to turn back to them. But I um, I want to show you this one in a little bit more detail as a worked example. So please keep a finger in Matthew and begin turning back to page 933. So back to page 933, and uh, again, just as a warning, we're going to spend about as long in Micah as we have done so far in Matthew, just so you know roughly, uh, and that'll leave us not very much time for my point two this morning. But what I want you to see is that this isn't just a, a single fact prediction, like, like finding that one fact written on a stone, Bethlehem. Matthew wants to use Micah to help us understand Jesus. In fact, Matthew thinks this whole matrix of ideas, going back 2,000 years, he thinks it only makes sense when you see Jesus. And he he thinks Jesus only makes sense if you begin to understand the Old Testament. So um, here's some of what's in Micah up on the screen now. Uh, Micah was a prophet with a problem. God sent him to tell Jerusalem that they were so sinful that God was going to destroy them. And when he said that, they went into um, serious denial. Uh, The references on the screen, so 2 verse 6. They said, no way. God just doesn't do things, doesn't do horrible things like judging people for their sin. And um, Micah said, 3 verse 12, one day soon... Jerusalem will be like a heap of rubble. Again, apologies to the, the Quintine. That must be very distressing in all your big work. Whole city, just a heap of rubble, not a stone left on a stone. And they said that is never going to happen. I imagine the same we might say about London. There's no way, all these buildings. But within Micah's lifetime, they changed their tune because the, the global superpower of Assyria came and conquered their whole, the whole country and besieged their capital city in 701 BC. And with the army outside, they repented, and they begged God to save them, and so he did. And uh, the heap of rubble uh, day was delayed. Delayed, but not cancelled. And in 587 BC, the new global superpower from Babylon came and destroyed their city. Uh, Babylon which is the same kind of place that the Magi came from. 
So Micah, he's a prophet with a problem and a message uh, to people in denial that God cares about what they do wrong and that their city will be destroyed. But he is not miserable all of the time. So look again at 3 verse 12, the the heap of rubble verse, and then look at the, the very next verse. 4 verse 1, in the last days, Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. And the, the temple building will be the highest, tallest tower in all of the world. So 3 verse 12 turns into 4 verse 1, says Micah. But how? And in the, the middle of his book, chapter 4, chapter 5, he tries to get them to understand that the, um, the bad stuff has to happen before the good stuff. Um, there is too much pride and sin in Jerusalem, so it has to be Babylon before it can be rescue. And actually, that pattern comes three times. 4 verse 9, it's like the way that you have to go through the pain of childbirth if you want a baby. So the, the bad stuff, the terrible pain, is the only way to get the good stuff, the, the bouncing baby boy or girl. Or 4 verse 11, it's like a siege, like a terrible siege, like 701 BC, when the global superpower brings his whole army right to your door. And you think, this is terrible. They've all come. But it turns out, actually, that is the best way to defeat him all in one go, which is what happened. But most of all, 5 verse 2, it's like finding a king in a place like Bethlehem which, of course, they've done once before. That is where David came from. Um, It's like going to the royal palace in Jerusalem and meeting a man called King Herod the Great and realizing he is not God's king, but that a, a tiny baby born in very difficult circumstances to a, a carpenter and his girl. Am I right? Were you a carpenter originally? No, is that right? Do I remember from the other one? No. Who, who am I mixing up? don't know. I wasn't paying attention. Anyway, uh, uh, Joseph the carpenter, not a king, in this tiny, unimpressive village. And actually, by next week, it gets worse again. By next week, the king is a child refugee. There's nothing more vulnerable in all the world, is there, than a, a refugee running for their life in the night. So it's like going to look for the king in the palace and then finding this sort of king and realizing he is going to rule the world forever. Five verse four to the ends of the earth. Okay, so come back again to Matthew's gospel. Come back forward, page 966. And I hope with a a bit more understanding of what the, um, what the magi know. Um, see, King Charles on Saturday, he is going to tell us that he will be a king uh, after the example of Jesus Christ. He will tell us that he will be our servant, the servant of the people. And I don't doubt for a minute that he is sincere about that. And his mother um, lived that decade after decade after decade. But still, you have to say that that isn't this, is it? That isn't what we've got here. Um, you know, when he arrives in the golden coach with the electric windows, unless I've got the wrong one, because he's got two, hasn't he, that he's using that day? Um, it, it's not quite this. Here is a, a truly surprising king, a truly humble king, someone who really could be trusted 
by everyone in the world who really could do something about our problem of sin and God's judgment on our sin. Um, Last week, we got his life goal from chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 21, which is that he will save his people from their sins. So we're, we're looking for someone who will go back and reverse the mistake that human beings made right uh, long before Abraham. Someone who will reverse our attack on God and make us in the right with God again. Again, this is going to be Rico's, the heart of what Rico will be saying in the Albert Hall if you watch this on the live stream on Saturday. And now this is him. This is the one who will die. And he will save his people from their sins, which um, sounds nice, doesn't it? But in chapter 1, you might have thought that he was here only for some kinds of people, and maybe only some kinds of sins. Certainly, I think, chapter 1, you'd think it was only Jewish people. And perhaps you would think it was only good, moral, respectable Jewish people, the kind of people who get invited uh, to come and see King Charles III crowned. But with Micah open... We know it really is all of the bad people, uh, the people who were sent into exile in Babylon, king for them to save them, the people who let God down year after year after year, the people who were in denial about it for generations, the people who treated each other appallingly. And with Matthew open, again, we know it really is for people from all over the world. Uh, Magi from the east come to see him. And worship him. We said a bit like the Russian army being invited to come and take part in the coronation. These were the bad guys from Micah's history. And now Matthew puts them here deliberately to say this is for anyone. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, this is your king. And he can save you from your sins. Okay, well much more briefly, point two. Uh, the Magi show us what we should do about this. Uh, the Magi show that Jesus is king of all their hearts. So verse 2, it says that they've come to worship him. And then verse 11, they bowed down and worshipped him. And worship um, here, it doesn't mean something that, that Christians do in church. It doesn't uh, have anything necessarily to do with singing. Uh, worship in their world meant to lie down on your face in the dirt before a king or a god, um, whoever you were. And clearly these were important, wealthy, expert people. It says, I am nothing compared to him. Uh, it, we had a lot more babies here uh, at the first service this morning, and I invited people to go and prostrate themselves in front of one baby in particular. And I watched, and I don't think anybody did. Uh, I don't think anyone did that. It says, doesn't it? It says that you are nothing. It says that you're making yourself entirely vulnerable. It says, please be in charge of me forever. And notice they, they don't do this in fear and trembling. There's actually lots of fear in this story. Uh, Herod is afraid. Um, and very soon Joseph and Mary are going to be afraid. But actually the Magi fall on their faces with joy. Verse 10, they were overjoyed. Just think about the commitment. They've traveled 900 miles, perhaps taken them four months. And all they want is to see him. And uh, remember what we said from, uh, from the coronation at the beginning? They want to make their homage 
in heart and voice to their undoubted king. I swear I pay true allegiance to your majesty. So help me God. And at the stages, verse 10, they see, they're joyful, they come into the house, then they bow down and they worship him, and then they open their treasures and they give him these expensive gifts, gifts for a king. Uh, these magi, they've come from another country, they've given up their wealth on the off chance that the king of the Jews might accept some stargazers from the old enemy country. And just last place to turn, turn to the very last paragraph of Matthew's Gospel. So come forwards to Matthew chapter 28. It's page 1000. And there are deliberate connections between what we've been looking at and the very end of the book. So Matthew 28, Jesus, he has just been killed uh, in exactly the way that the prophet said he would be. And now um, in this verse, he's alive again, exactly as he said he would be. And verse 17, here are some people again worshipping him. And this time it is uh, 11 disciples who he now makes his messengers uh, going forwards. He tells them to go and tell everybody what he is all about. And the message is exactly the same as what the Magi knew. Verse 18, it is that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. But also, the offer that Jesus makes is to the whole world. Uh, so verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, everybody. And it starts with a, a baptism, which is a, a washing that tells you that your sin has gone. Jesus has taken away your sin. So um, all of us, we have six days in which to decide whether to um, swear an oath to our TV on uh, Saturday. But the king of all the world, he is inviting you, commanding you to swear allegiance to him, to bow down before him. He's been inviting you to do that for 2,000 years. And the, the Magi and Micah, they say there is no doubt. He is the undoubted king. And the, the Magi and the 11 disciples, they say this, this is for you. This really is for you. Whoever you are, wherever you are from, whatever you have done, this is your king and he will embrace you. Uh, let me pray before uh, we sing our final song. Dear Father, we thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us a king who is humble, uh, who was born in poverty, who gave up his life to die for us, but who you have made king forever for all people. And thank you for his offer that he would save his people from their sins. And Father, we pray that we would come to him, trust him, uh, swear allegiance to him and love him, we pray, for his glory. Amen. <laughs>